Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on FUBAR Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Politics Uncensored. I'm Ali Milani, your host here on FUBAR Radio. First of all, before we get into any of the content of this week's show, I just want to say a big congratulations to everybody receiving their GCSE results um, A-level results, um, and and generally whether you're in an apprenticeship or you're at college or you're going to university, to say big congratulations on completing your journey. It's been uh, far too many years since I received my results. I'm not going to do those numbers. Last week, one of the guests made me do maths about my own age. I'm not going to do that again this week. I, for those of you who were paying attention, I got it horribly wrong. But I do want to say a big congratulations because it's a big deal. It's one of those moments... Uh, in your life that you remember opening up that envelope and seeing the results you're either bitterly disappointed very happy or somewhere in between but as you know is the cliche of every politician and every parents and teachers to tell you that no matter what you got whether you are thrilled and jumping up and down or whether you were bitterly disappointed it's not the end of the road but the beginning of the journey for you um so there are there are there are lots of avenues and and routes uh, to take to accomplish whatever dream you may have of 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 careers and lives that you want to build for yourself, and that's going to be part of the theme of the show. It's education this week, um, and we've got a an amazing group of guests coming on. We're primarily going to be talking about higher education, um, but we might put some FE in there as well. And um, I should remind everyone at this point um, that I used to be the vice president uh, union development of the National Union of Students. I spent two years as president of my students' union at Brunel uh, and two years as a national officer for the National Union of Students. Um, and so this is an area I'm particularly passionate about and confident in, um, and I'm hoping to have a really, really good discussion um, with guests such as Tom Allingham, communications director at Save the Students, uh, and an expert on student finance uh, who we're going to speak to later Uh, And Chloe Field, Vice President for Higher Education of the NUS, uh, one of my successes at NUS, which uh, I'm looking forward to speaking to. But as with every show and every week, we start with The Week Unwrapped. And I have uh, a great guest with me this week. He's an activist, a writer, a co-founder of Our Future, Our Choice. You will have seen him on TV, on YouTube, on TikTok, uh, pretty much all over. Um, He was a passionate uh, campaigner against Brexit, but obviously discusses a wide range of issues, and that is Femi uh, Oliwale. Femi, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we're going to talk about a number of issues, and we're going to end on education. But first, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about one of the breaking pieces of news this week, and that's that bosses at Britain, at Britain's biggest company saw their pay rises, pays, pay packets rise by almost 16% on average last year, as most workers' wages were squeezed by rising prices. The high-pay centre said... The median pay of FTSE 100 chief execs was 3.91 million in 2022, up from 3.38 in 2021. It added that the average earnings of FTSE 100 bosses was 118 times more than a typical UK worker on 33k a year. Critters called the earnings extreme, but some of the firms argued that they were in line with competitors. Now, Femi, cost of living crisis. People can't afford to do their shopping. They can't, they have to pick between heating their house and putting food on their children's plates. And we've got some of the richest in London getting richer. FTSE 100 bosses, chief execs getting on average 16% pay rise. This is a slap in the face of the British public, is it not? Yeah, this just tells us exactly why we all have to vote. Because often we often think that politics is this thing far removed. It's just old men shouting at each other in in Westminster, but they have the power to change this. The UK is one of the most financially unequal countries in in the West in the Western world. 
We, I think we're fourth most financially unequal in Europe. We have the worst um, regional inequality of, of any large major, major economy. And this is what you see. You end up seeing this sort of thing. And the reason why the politics that we currently have allows that to happen is because we have a party in power that literally, um, Boris, uh, was it Rishi Sunak last, last summer, about this time last year, bragging during his leadership race about how he defunded deprived urban areas in favor of rich ones like Tunbridge Wells. We have a government that deliberately tries to make sure that the rich get richer. I mean, Liz Truss, the other, um, last year when she was doing her mini budget, she literally said it is fair to give more money to rich people. This is the attitude. This can be changed. We can live a better life, but the politicians won't let us, which is why we have to vote. Why do you think there's such a hesitancy within British politics to really go after some of the unequalness in terms of pay packets? I mean, we saw it in 2008. After the 2008 crash, when everyone was suffering, we saw the bankers bonuses that went out and the outrage from the public we've now seen with the cost of living crisis a 16 percent increase when nurses and doctors um, train drivers teachers are told to jog on um, but there seems to be a consensus in westminster that in order to govern we need to bring these big businesses with us and therefore a little bit of a fear to go after these pay packets whether in rhetoric or policy there just seems to be a fear why do you think that is it's because we don't have a real democracy. We have, as I said, the, the, the attitude of the Tories is give the rich, make the rich richer, but they only got 44% of the vote. The majority of the vote went to parties that were much more towards the left. Labour, Lib Dems, Greens, SNP, that's more than 50% of the vote just there with those parties. And if you do the polling, it says I think it was 63% of the public are in favour of taxing the rich more. That is just the view that we are a country that believes in taxing the rich to help the poor. But unfortunately, because of our voting system, we end up giving absolute power to a party that believes in the exact opposite, the reverse Robin Hood. And absolute power having not received more than 50% of the vote from the public yeah, as well. It's especially, uh, they didn't get 50% of the vote, they got 44%, and now we have a prime minister that wasn't even, prime, wasn't even the leader of the party at the time of the last election doing things deliberately to make us poor yeah and he, even even he even he wasn't um he wasn't voted through i on the tories i think we're exactly on the same page i wonder what you think about uh labor and liberal democrat responses to, to this as well because they seem hesitancy i mean they both want to present themselves as uh the party of business i i guess part of that is around the rhetoric of the economy and safety within the economy making sure that businesses feel safe to invest here to create jobs but there does seem to be a bit of hesitancy from opposition sides as well as it relates to big business. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's largely because essentially there isn't a conservative party anymore. The conservative party, the traditional conservative values that you would think would be conservative, i.e. being sensible with the economy, being prudent, being uh, a lack of intervention into our private lives, that sort of thing. That party doesn't exist within the Tories anymore. They're the same party that flirted with the no-deal Brexit. They trashed the economy with Liz Truss. They're banning protests, the exact opposite of everything that traditional conservatism was supposed to stand for. And so that's mm -hmm. why you have the Lib Dems and even Labour now trying to move into that space, trying to reclaim the centre, even centre-right ground, because they know that those voters are right for the picking. And so that's why a, a lot of people who are on the progressive side of politics in the UK feel very much abandoned by this version of mm -hmm. Labour because they essentially think, well, we've got your votes in the bag. We can just go and go get some Tory mm -hmm. voters. Uh, Do you think that's a problem? Instead. I think it's, to be honest, if Keir Starmer wanted to move more to the right and purely for the purposes of getting the Tories out, I would be okay with it only if he promised to give us a fair voting system afterwards. Because as I said, this, this country, since mm. World War II, almost every single election has voted for parties to the left of the Conservative Party. We are a progressive voting country compared to the government that we keep being given. 
And so if he actually promised, committed to changing the voting system, we wouldn't have to have a situation where- But he's given no indication part. of that, has he? I know. That, mm -hmm. That's why it's completely unacceptable that he's moving to the right whilst not promising to any, any real change after that. Ironically enough, as you'll know, I'm a, I'm a Labour Party member. I'm not sure if you are, but I'm a Labour Party member. And the majority are of they? the Labour Party are members are massively in favour of, of electoral reform. In fact, we passed it at the last national conference, but it seems to be mm -hmm. ignored at the top echelon. Yeah, uh, I actually got kicked out of the Labour Party in March 2020, uh, precisely because I said on Twitter... Uh, dear any Lib Dems and Greens who are disappointed that I've joined the Labour Party, please understand that I'm doing this because I know that electoral reform and a fair voting system is the best way to save the country. And if I do achieve that, that means the votes of your parties will actually count in, a, in all future elections. So me joining the Labour Party and getting them to do an electoral pact is the single best thing I could possibly do for your parties as well. And the Labour Party basically said, nah, we can't have you um, supporting other parties at the same time when that's not what I was doing. <laughs> Uh, so I, that I, notion of working together, that notion of equal voting uh, is fundamentally against uh, the leadership of, of this party. And that's yeah, the, I mean, a uh, massive division between leadership and the party right now. I mean, Femi, mate, I'll, I'll be honest with you. A lot of people have been kicked out for a lot less. Um, and just to avoid me getting kicked out, we're going to bridge very quickly past this topic. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I have to be honest with you. I've come on a journey on, on electoral reform. I'm, I mean, I haven't been in politics that long. I kind of got involved when I was 16, 17. But early on, I was kind of fed this narrative that first past the post is... Um, protects us from extremists like the mm -hmm. BNP and others. A lot of that has been debunked, and I've I've now reached a conclusion. I think in the last five years, specifically, that that our country is no longer a democracy. You can't have a government uh, of one party in thirteen years rule over the country without having achieved fifty percent of the vote. It's ludicrous, no? Exactly. Uh, I think. I mean, and the thing is, it's and there are people all across really the country, by the way, that I door knock on or, or engage with or, or come on the show who say, "Listen, my vote literally means nothing." Like when mm -hmm. I go to the vote, if you, if you're in a safe seat, you you know, it's not that it doesn't mean anything. Obviously, there's there's huge uh, moral value to it. There's the symbolic value to it, but as it pertains to electoral math, my mm -hmm. vote isn't going to make a difference. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, people often when when you when you say we need to change the voting system. People accuse you of trying to rig things in favor of Labour. But no, it's not fair regardless of who wins. Because if a party that only, only a minority of people have voted for always gets a majority of the seats in Parliament, that means that a party that a minority voted for can do what any anything they want, pass any laws they want, without having mm -hmm. to even talk to the parties that the rest of the people voted for, i.e. the majority, yeah. which means the majority of votes literally mean nothing. But it's, it's also... I don't, any effect I, on the democratic process. I don't even think it's just electoral math, if I'm honest with you. I think it also helps political discussion one of the things mm -hmm. i was shocked at when i when i when i lost to boris and i went to the states and i kind of had this maybe this british thing of oh, having always grown up here and, and loving the country of, of thinking our democracy was better but i actually found the political discourse in america was better it was healthier um and even they have their electoral problems with the uh, electoral college and other things but i don't think it's just a, an electoral math issue or an issue of who who wins and loses the election but a a fairer more democratic process would surely help healthy democratic debate oh yeah i mean that, that, that's 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 one of the biggest problems because if you know that in your constituency only one mp can win only one party can win you can't have a situation where it's proportional representation where by um you get the votes the seats get split up based on the percentage of the votes that you get if only one party can win then anybody anybody with an even slightly different point of view to you is an existential threat to your beliefs and so you, you're automatically talking to the per other person as if they're your enemy rather than somebody you can find some common ground with. 
This proportional, yeah. this first past the post system that we have is designed to make us all at each other's throats. Yeah, and I think um, nothing is better represented of that by the physical state of parliament where they're sat directly opposite each other, mm -hmm. almost in a confrontational method. I, I wrote a paper at this book in university. I'm sure if I read it back now, it would suck. But but the, the idea was that, that, that our democracy is built for confrontation. Okay, we're going to move on to the next story. And it's one that you're you're familiar with. I, I, I had a quick look at um, your Twitter feed and I watched one of your YouTube videos about this um, really, really sad, tragic case. And that is the case uh, of Lucy Letby. Uh, now, for those who don't know, Lucy Letby was a suspended nurse found guilty of murdering seven babies and attempting to murder a further six others between june 2015 and june 2016 you will have seen this all across the news um this week alone the president of the RS rcn which is the royal college of nurses has said that lucy letby may have been stopped sooner if she wasn't white and there's a there's a big debate going on and i think um it's 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 been a little bit toxic online uh, around whether Lucy Letby was allowed to get as far as she did because of the color of her skin, because she was a white nurse. Um, and I think the the institutional racism that exists within the healthcare system is one um, that isn't really up for debate. The data is there, as you have highlighted on your YouTube channel. Um, can you tell us a little bit, expand a little bit about your thoughts on this and whether you agree with the president of the RCN, which who is saying that Lucy Letby may have been stopped sooner if she wasn't white? So we have to, we're starting with a, a major, major tragedy here, which was allowed to happen because complaints and concerns were, were raised against Lucy Letby. There, there were warnings that were made and those were essentially ignored by the authorities. And it's, instead of actually punishing her and, and making sure that she wasn't able to do what she did, they actually made the doctors who raised the alarm apologize to her. Now, that is by definition something, inc a massive professional failure. And so the question is, what allowed that to happen? And we have to be objective here. When I made this point on, on Twitter or on, on YouTube, I had a lot of people that were angry with me that how dare you bring race into this. But it is a matter of fact that the, um, the Nursing and Midwifery Council, which basically decides if people get to keep being nurses, they that they've done studies on this that show that if you are um there are several stages you have to go through the complaints process then there's a screening process there's an investigation process and then you find out the outcome now um, according to them uh you have more people from ethnic minorities who are complained against but then and the next stage at the screening stage where they haven't actually done the full investigation yet white nurses are more likely to be found innocent and therefore the invest the whole thing gets closed i.e they're um deemed innocent after that, at the next stage, once the investigation is concluded, ethnic minority nurses, black nurses especially, are more likely to be found innocent than white nurses. And white nurses at the end of the process are more likely to be struck off, which means that it is easier to um, essentially strike off a black nurse than a white nurse. And essentially the system protects white nurses disproportionately more than other people. Mm -hmm. So you have to ask yourself, if that is the thinking that is going to the people that are making these decisions, then yeah. doesn't that mean that it makes it more likely that a white nurse that is doing something wrong is less likely to be sanctioned for it? Yeah, I think I think where the criticism has come is that we, we can discuss the institutional racism that exists within nursing and within uh, the, the NHS and healthcare in general in the UK. I think where people have been uncomfortable is actually directly linking it to a single case. As you started your um your response to my question, you mentioned very rightly there's a huge tragedy. We've had seven babies murdered a further an attempted murder on a further six um in a period of just one year and i think where the criticism has been is listen we can all agree that the institution i don't 
you know, this isn't a, one of those shows where we put facts up for debate on the show, right? If a fact is a fact. It's not up for debate. Um, you can't have an, a differing opinion on, on tangible fact. And I think the research is, is absolutely inconclusive incon- uh, on institutional racism in these sectors. Then the criticism has been, is it inappropriate when seven families have lost their children to link this directly to racism when there isn't any direct evidence to suggest that fact? So we're looking for answers. We're trying to figure out how to avoid this happening again. And I find that it's similar to when you have a mass shooting in America, people immediately go to gun control. We need to control the guns. And then you'll have the pushback from people saying, oh, but we've had a tragedy now. We can't be talking about politics. No, but the difference, I mean, listen, Femi, the difference with guns is that when, when there's a school shooting that happens in America, that is the direct variable is the gun. Right. We don't have any evidence that the direct variable of Lucy Letby being allowed to do this is race. There's very different things. We we don't have any evidence. We don't have any evidence to prove that it definitely was the case in this case. Whereas with whereas with guns, it's very clear. Yes, obviously. But what we're trying to do is make sure that we remove as many barriers as we can see that um, that prevent guilty nurses from being sanctioned and stopped. And given that we can see that there is one that we have lots of evidence for, if we actually care about those babies, we should be trying to get rid of any evidence that we can see. If you can point to another factor that can that, that would have meant, meant that. Oh, I think we've got some technical issues with Femi there. Um, we're just going to get to try to get him back now. But I think he was he was rounding off his answer um uh, around this and i think what 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 femi was was trying to point to is the fact that listen we we're not suggesting specifically that this is this was an issue that she would have been stopped with rape uh, with with as a result of race but i mean the president of the rcn has said that 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 they do believe that lucy levy would have, may have been stopped sooner uh, if she wasn't white but i think what femi uh, if i'm not uh, misinterpreting his answer was saying that there there are multiple variables but if one of them is race why wouldn't we um, talk about that now in order to eliminate it from happening um, in the future? Uh, the next story, and hopefully we're going we're to try and get Femi back, but um, the next story is surrounding the, the RNC debates last night, so the Republican Party uh, debates. Femi, I've got you back. Um, I think you were just rounding off your answer around, listen, I, I, if I'm not misinterpreting it, was saying that you know, if, even if this is one variable, surely if we care about this not happening in the future, we need to address it. Exactly. If you could point to a different option as to how how what what part of the system favored Lucy Letby against the doctors who are raising concerns, then mm-hmm. sure, let's go for that as well. But we're just pointing out one. Just in fact, I find it to be extremely problematic if when we are giving an, an option as to this might have been responsible for um, these de- the baby, deaths of these babies, you're mm-hmm. then saying no, 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 no. We have to protect institutional racism. Yeah. That's, it's, and I, I, I yeah. I think where you're right is that this this isn't a case of 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 uh, of a nurse you know sort of abusing her position and killing one child. There has clearly been an institutional failure here, um, as it pertains to um, the trust and the NHS and the response to that. Given that she had, you know, doctors had raised alarm over it, so I think your response is a good one in, in that it's saying this isn't a reaction to a single case but an institutional failure. And if racism is a part of that institutional failure, how can we not talk about it? How can we not address it? Exactly. I mean, the, the term that we use in, in law is necessary but not sufficient. 
as in just because just, it is necessary to address this element, even if it's not the thing that's going to solve the entire problem, mm -hmm. you have to address the problems that you can see. And this is a clear and glaring problem that we can see. Yeah. Especially when you had BBC journalists literally saying, this is not what a um, serial baby killer should look like. Yeah, and that statement certainly wouldn't have been said if Lucy Letby had been a black nurse. I think that is, uh, again, indisputable. Um, lastly, last story, um, we've we've gone a little bit over, but uh, you know, I think we've had a really, really good discussion. I've enjoyed having you on, is on the theme of the show this week, which is education. So Sakir Starmer has claimed he would be unable to go to university if we, he were a school leaver now, raising the prospect that Labour will announce plans to help students with the cost of living crisis. The Labour leader said the economic climate and soaring prices would have stopped my dream cold in its tracks if he wanted to study law today. His comments suggest the party could soon announce policies to help students with rising rent and other costs if he becomes prime minister. Now, for context of people, um, when Keir Starmer went to university, higher education was free um, and it, the tuition fees was brought about um, starting with um, Tony Blair's government, but really ramped up by the coalition government who tripled tuition fees. Uh, so Keir Starmer studied law. Femi, I believe you studied law, but you yeah. paid very different prices for them. Yeah, it was it was still three k when 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 I was doing it. Three um, k more than he paid. My brother had to pay um, is slightly more than that. And so, um, do you? But yeah, how you know if we have a combination of things from tuition fees to the maintenance grants turning into loans to the cost of living crisis to the bursaries for nurses, for example, that have been scrapped. How prohibitive is our education system becoming? And are, do you worry that stories like yours, like mine, might not be possible in the future, maybe even Keir Starmer's, for people not being able to afford to, to, to get their higher education degree? I think, it's, I think it starts right, right from the bottom. I think, I think the fact that we need to have um, more, more funding to deal with the fact that the, the massive attainment gap between working class kids and private school kids. I mean, we have, a, we have, we have the, the Tories literally using an algorithm that gave the best grades to, to private school kids during the, during the pandemic, or they, ha they had to reverse that right at the end. We've recently seen that with the recent uh, A-level and GCSE grades, the gap between rich and poor has only gotten wider. In fact, their education czar, their, edu their advisor for the, for the government as to how to help the working class kids catch up after the pandemic, he actually quit because the Tories refused to provide enough money. So we need to focus on this because because it, it is going to be a massive dent on social mobility if we're, if education stops being a way to to move move your, move your way up. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's that's one of the major things that we need to be focusing on. We spoke earlier about the sort of slap in the face, and I I always thought that this was a slap in the face. We spoke about it when it comes to bankers and and FTSE 100 bosses, but I always thought it's it's a bit of a slap in the face when politicians who literally enjoyed a free education tell the next generation that it's no longer affordable. That that is in of itself spitting in the face of the next generation for me no oh 100 percent um pulling up pulling up the ladder is basically the way that this government likes to roll i mean we have um what they've done they essentially created their lives in an economy that worked for them and they've done everything they can to trash it and we're having i mean we, we've what we've gone through uh, as a, as millennials and gen z's in the last 10 years alone has been insane yeah. and they went through none of this and they've made our lives worse before yeah. they then yeah, I mean, me and you, me, me and you are, are are similar ages. I think you're just a little bit older than me. But um, I, I think you know, our generation went through the 2008 crash, the housing crisis, tuition fees being trebled, maintenance grants being gotten rid of, Brexit on top of cost of living crisis and pandemic. How much more can they hit us with? And Russia, uh, Russia as well. It's, yeah, it has been, and it's it's the I think the thing that's painful is if things were bad, that is one thing. But if you have a government that is deliberately hurting us, that makes it so much worse. And, and I mean, both the Tories and Labour in the sense that 
in 2019, the government's um, experts re released the documents that showed that no matter what version of Brexit they negotiated, it would make people poor, which means that by pursuing Brexit, they were deliberately making everybody in this country poor after eight years of austerity, which is insane. And the fact that it's been allowed to do policies that you know that all your experts say is going to hurt people, that needs to be fixed, which is why, for me... Um, Brexit is just a symbol of uh, it's like the testing testing knob for how how bad our politics mm -hmm. is. Are politicians willing to just deliberately hurt us? Yeah. The fact that Keir Starmer is refusing to stand against it that's a major problem as well. It is, and we're going to be staying on this topic um, of education next, as we have Tom Allingham, communications director at Save the Student, and an expert on student finance, joining us. Um, we've we've just had the week unwrapped with uh, our guest Femi Alawale, activist, writer, and co-founder of Our Future, Our Choice. Femi, thank you so much for joining us. Tom is Brilliant. joining us next. He's going to be talking to us about student finance, grants, tuition fees, and Sakir Starmer's uh, latest announcement around education after this message. Fubar Radio presents. As handsome as you imagine. What did you have for breakfast that morning? Almost certainly a pie. For breakfast? Yeah, because we started really, really early, right? At the butchers. Yeah. We started proper early, that's yeah. like seven o'clock. I would have had at least six pies. A day? A day. That is a lot of pies. No, no, because we sold them at the shop. That is a legitimate answer to the question, who ate all the pies? Yeah. <laughs> From 1pm every Monday. Welcome back. This is Ali Milani on Politics Uncensored. And this week we're talking about education. This comes as students all across the country have been receiving GCSE results. Earlier they received uh, A-level results. Um, and the future of their lives, their careers, but also the country is really on the line given, um, given the recent reports and headlines in the education sector. Specifically today we're talking about Sakir Starmer announcing that Labour would make the student fees system fairer after saying that he wouldn't be able to go to university today, uh, given the situation in the higher education sector. Now, as we mentioned with Femi earlier, Sakir Starmer enjoyed a free education um, at the time that he studied law. He also said that the cost of living crisis was holding students back from reaching their full potential. However, Labour recently scrapped their pledge to, uh, to scrap tuition fees, saying that the difficult situ financial situation made it impossible to sustain. This was after the leadership election uh, the Labour leadership election where Sakir Starmer promised to scrap tuition fees altogether. Joining me now is Tom Allingham, Communications Director at Save the Student and an expert on student finance. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hope you're well. Tom, can you give our, our, our listeners who may not know, I mean, I used to be an officer at NUS, so I know far too well, but uh, for those who don't know, can you give them a little bit of a journey of how we got to this, to the moment we're in when it comes to, uh, to, to fees? I mean, Sakir Starmer has said that if he were to go to university today, he probably wouldn't be able to. I mentioned he enjoyed a free education system, but what's the journey we've come on to reach today? Yes. So obviously fees were introduced initially back in the 1990s and they kind of rose steadily um, up until around, well, it was in 2012, I'll say 2012, yeah, when tuition fees trebled. So they went from £3,000 a year to £9,000 a year. Now, since then, they have increased slightly to £9,250, but the fact remains that they are still at an all-time high. And and so what kind of impact has hit, has this had um, on students? Because it's not just tuition fees, is it? And I've I noted that you're an expert on student finance. Tuition fees are, are, are painful when you look at them on paper, but the reality is most students won't bump up against tuition fees until they get a job later on where they will pay that back. Um, but it really is the maintenance grants, maintenance loans, and the cost of living at university or whatever higher education institution you're in. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well? 
yeah that's absolutely right so we as an organization are against tuition fees we do believe they should be abolished but we always say that they are almost a distraction from the main issue that students face which is getting by university so historically as i'm sure you know and i'm sure many of your listeners know as well the maintenance loan which is the loan that you have to live on whilst you're at university has never really been enough in the first place but what we've seen particularly in the past two or three years is that because the loan hasn't been increasing at the rate of inflation that loan that was already not enough has actually gone down in real terms so the ifs for instance estimates that students in england are now up to 1500 pounds worse off every year in real terms compared to before the cost of living crisis because the loan has not increased with inflation so students you know students have historically never been financially very well off but we're now in a situation where they are being squeezed like never before and i think what we're seeing is is actually in reality on the ground there are there are lots of people from working class backgrounds who may bump up against the tuition fees but really when they look at get going and getting a higher education degree they're thinking the maintenance grants and loans or whatever won't be anywhere near enough to sustain me those who can't afford to go to the bank of mum and dad are left struggling and so may be tempted to go straight into work and into employment rather than higher education as a result of the financial circumstances at home yeah and i i would have to say to a certain extent i wouldn't blame them and i think looping back to round uh, background rather to what uh Starmer said about you know the uh, the tuition fee system no longer being fair again we as an organization are against fees so if, if he you know does anything in government were he to get into power to reduce tuition fees or abolish them altogether fantastic but really the focus from all parties needs to be on giving students enough money to survive while they're at university he mm-hmm. says that he wouldn't be able to go because the funding system is unfair now i would argue that tuition fees again whilst we are against them are not actually a barrier because as you say it's not something you have to worry about until you graduated and then the repayments are fairly manageable even under the new system which is a whole other kettle of fish the issue as you say that's going to put people off going to university is the fact that the loan is nowhere near enough and for the students from the poorest backgrounds where they can't rely on parental contributions the maximum loan is still not going to be enough to cover in some cases even the cost of rent so that's going to be the thing that puts people off going to university that's going to be the thing that stops Mm -hmm. social mobility you guys do a lot of work on student finance and you know i think um there's certainly a view out there across the rest of the country that that there are these woke students in universities around the country who are spending all their money on Netflix and nights out as a result of what they perceive to be what they did at university, right? Which is pot noodles and, and going to lectures. Me and you both know that's not true. Can you give them a little bit of a sense of, listen, when I went to, I received the maximum maintenance um, loan at the time. Um, and by the time I paid, I lived on campus. So by the time I paid my rent, there was really nothing much left to live on and so we ended up you know going weeks and weeks on pot noodles and canned soup and other things uh because we did, i couldn't go to mum or dad to, to 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 pay for things i just want you to kind of enlighten listeners about what students are having to do to get through their educational degree because of the financial of you know bursaries be, being gotten rid of grants being gotten rid of and loans being introduced yes so I guess the the place to start is to say that the average maintenance loan is £485 a month. Average living costs are £924 a month. So there's a monthly shortfall of £439 a month. So, you know, the the thick end or over £4,000 a year that students are having to make up. So already the idea that students are being kind of frivolous with their money is already out the window because when you've got, you know, over four grand a year to make up, you're not going to be spending that money on you know, things that you don't necessarily need. 
in terms of what students are doing to bridge that gap, obviously some students, you know, are able to rely on parental contributions, although in many cases it's nowhere near enough and it's nowhere near the level that the government expects, you know, intrinsically within the system. Um, some students are able to get a part-time job, but again, for various reasons, that's not always an option. It might not be possible with the time. It might not be the availability of work. And it's when that those two options are out the window that suddenly we look at the more kind of risky, less conventional ways that students are making money. Though, So for instance, in our surveys that we've conducted, 18% of students told us that they use credit cards as a way to kind of make ends meet. 6% of students have told us that they gamble as a way to make ends meet. 4% have used private loans, which typically come with far higher interest rates than the student loan. And 3% of students have told us that they do sex work. Now, again, as an organization, we're totally fine with people doing sex work if it's something that they're happy to do, something that they're consensually doing. But, you know, the, re the responses that we get from students, the vast majority of them tell us that when they are doing sex work, it's because they have exhausted all other sources of income. They haven't got any other options. They need to pay the bills. And this is a last resort. And I think that's the really troubling thing that people have this idea that students are you know, frivolous with their money, that they spend, spend all of it on alcohol or Netflix or whatever. The reality is that people are turning to things that they would never have otherwise considered to make money because that is the extent to which the maintenance loan is not enough. And how much do you think this is, this is long-term going to be a class barrier for people? I mean, the view was to really open up higher education to everybody because you know the, the, the promise that we're told is that as long as you work hard enough, get a good education, then you can go on and do well. That's the sort of dream that's sold to every kid at school. But now the system has, has essentially become more unequal than ever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've historically always said that anybody can go to university. They can, they can make it work. I, I have to say in the last year or so with the way that the loan has not kept up with inflation, I am having to reconsider that, that kind of opinion of mine that I, I, I do think that it's, you know, as you say, the people from the lowest income backgrounds, the ones who can't rely on those parental contributions, they will be the ones who, even if they do make it to university, will be the mm. ones who, you know, six months, a year down the line will realize, I just can't do it. I yeah. just cannot make ends meet. I cannot sustain my education at the same time. I'm going to have to drop out. Yeah. And let's, uh, so if we could quickly circle back to tuition fees, we've spoken about maintenance grants. One of the things I don't think is spoken about enough with tuition fees isn't actually the financial barrier of the student, but what impact tuition fees has had on the behavior of institutions and that's universities specifically that i'm speaking of when the nine thousand fees was dreamed up i mean i was there at the time i remember the debates it wasn't that every degree would be nine thousand pounds the idea was that depending on the cost of the degree some would be three thousand some would be four thousand some would be nine thousand and it would create this sort of right-wing dream of competition amongst universities for students and i think what people don't know which you can maybe enlighten them on is that the money for universities used to come in the way of a grant from government, um, whereas now it comes directly from the student. And so courses that aren't particularly profitable are being cut. Things like the arts are being cut left, right and center. They're cramming 100, 150 students into lectures and into courses that are more profitable. And every course is £9,000. So there is no real competition between universities. And lastly, because there isn't a cap on international students, international students are seen as a cash cow by universities. So it's not just that it's a barrier to students, it's also changed the behavior of the entire sector. Yeah, I mean, there's almost very little I can add to what you just said. You put it all very eloquently there. But I think, you know, importantly, again, I have to add the caveat that we are against tuition fees. But if you're going to have them, you can't need to have a system where 
universities are still getting in real terms the same amount of money each year it's only gone up from 9,000 to 9,250 9, pounds in the space of what 11 years now so again in real terms universities have had their their income you know strangled essentially you know cut massively in real terms so they are and you're finding are you finding that they're bringing in more international students as a result because they can charge them more I don't have the figures to hand, but certainly anecdotally, I know that there are lots of stories of universities, particularly those who are able to rely on international students. So obviously not every university in the UK has the same appeal to an international student, but those in, say, for example, major UK cities like, you know, London, Manchester, Edinburgh, those are the universities who have been able to rely on increased numbers of international students. But then that can also be to the detriment of UK students in the sense of, you know, international students might be more able to take places in accommodation and things like that. So, you mm -hmm. know, the system is effectively in chaos. Yeah. Okay, Tom, I want to ask you a question. You're going to have to be honest with me, okay? Let's, yeah. you're going to start with, promise me you're going to be honest with me. I'll try. All right, man. Um, I'm a student, right? I'm 17, 18 years old. I want to be a doctor. That's my dream to be a doctor. But I come from a working class family. Um, and I often have to support my family with odd jobs, part-time jobs as I went through college. My family don't have the financial means to support me through medical school. Um, and I am worried that if I were to go to medical school, that it would leave my fa family in financial peril. Would you advise that I go to university under the current system? Under the current system, given that medicine is such an intense degree to an extent where you potentially won't be able to work part-time alongside it, I would say, unless you are able to get your hands on some good bursaries, scholarships and grants, quite possibly, you know, you would not be able to support your family in the way that you were used to. So, yeah, I would say give it a long, hard thought at the very least. That, that sounds like a no to me. It, yeah, I mean, like I say, every, but how depressing is that, right? If a kid has a dream of becoming a doctor, it really is the the amount of money in his parents' bank account and his financial situation, he or she, um, that determines whether they can become a doctor. Is that not a serious indictment of our system? Oh, absolutely. And this is why we think fundamentally the maintenance loan has to go up both in the short term. Um, you know, to kind of catch up with inflation, but also to have long-term sustained increases so that we don't end up in this situation again. Okay, Tom, I often do this on the show. I don't know how much of it you've seen, but whenever we have guests on, I like to give you 30 seconds, 60 seconds, or whatever time um, you think is 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 good. Pretend Keir Starmer was sat here or Rishi Sunak was sat here and, and you had a direct plea to them of what they could do to make the system fairer, more equal, and give people like the, the, the person I just created in, in our little scenario, give them a fair shot at education to, to, to accomplish their dreams. 60 seconds, what would you tell them to do? Okay, well, first of all, I would tell them, guys, I know that you kind of either take students' votes for granted or just assume they're never going to vote for you in the first place, but scrap that way of thinking because their needs are just as important as anyone else's. Um, you need to increase maintenance loans both in the short term and in the long term, but as part of that as well, reintroduce maintenance grants so that students aren't taking on you know, circa £50,000 of debt within three years of turning 18. And then in addition to that, increase the minimum parental income threshold on student loans. So currently, that has not changed for over 10 years. So the maximum 10 years, only wow. goes... Yeah, so only students whose, whose household income is £25,000 or less get the maximum loan. But because that threshold obviously hasn't changed for over 10 years, fewer and fewer people are now eligible for the maximum loan, meaning students who... You know, if you go back 10 years and kind of extrapolate it forwards, people who are, have a household income of less than, say, 33, £35,000 should be getting the maximum loan, but aren't because the thresholds haven't moved. So students who are just as poor now as they were, say, 10, 11 years ago 
are not getting the same funding that they would have done a decade ago. So that needs to change as well. Very eloquent. Thank you so much. That was Tom Allingham, Communications Director at Save the Student, Save the Student, and an expert on student finance. Tom has uh, very eloquently placed where we are currently and how we got here. Joining us next, we have Chloe Field, Vice President for Higher Education at the National Union of Students, um, where I served as two years for Vice President. And I'm looking forward to having Chloe speak with us, not just, I mean, we've already kind of spoken about how the unfair the system is and the realities of the sort of marketized new edu higher education sector but how disappointed she is by politicians um, and the solutions that they are looking at offering to young people and students as we approach a general election fubar radio presents access all areas we have the absolute icon mm -hmm. legend janice dickinson i'm here do you still enjoy doing reality shows or do you now see it as more of like a part of your job that you like have to do i do i do really enjoy it i do i don't enjoy the actuality of, of eating fish eyeballs <laughs> well yeah there's that side to amazon or, yeah. or vagina of cow yeah. but you do like the sort of social I, side do you like just the the social side was fantastic just getting to know people mm. and uh sleeping with people and eating with people when we didn't really have enough food access all areas every wednesday fubar radio Welcome back. This is Ali Maloney on Politics Uncensored at FUBAR Radio. We're talking education this week. Um, and as, as many of you all know, this, uh, this is a, 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 an area of passion of mine. Um, and I think we've had, just before the break, we had a quite profound moment uh, with Tom Allingham, who is a communications director at Save the Student. I asked Tom if, you know, if I was a working class kid who dreamed of becoming a doctor whose family couldn't support him. Um, and where I worried about their financial situation were I to leave and go to med school, whether he would advise that I do so. And I think, you know, I took it as a very much a no that, that, that we should rethink it, given not just the tuition fees, but the maintenance situation um, and and the tough economic times that face students all across the country. I think that was a pretty damning indictment of where we are. Um, and quite accurately, uh, I think Sakir Stammer has announced that were he to go to university now, um, that dream would be stopped in its tracked, stat, tracks. Uh, I don't know why that word was so hard for me. Stopped my dream cold in its tracks um, is, is, is what he said. And um, perhaps most apt now, we have uh, our guest from the vice president, who is the vice president of higher education at the National Union of Students, Chloe Field, NUSVP HE. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you for having me. As, as you know, um, I... I wasn't quite VPHE, but I was part of the team at NUS many, many moons uh, ago. How do you respond to Sakir Starmer's um, sort of announcement slash quotes over the last uh, couple of days, where he essentially said if he wanted to go study law, which is what he studied today, he may not be able to? Yeah, I think it's really in good and important that Starmer is talking about higher education and at least acknowledging the issues that are facing students in universities. However, I think you really, to kind of go on into the general election and to gain the trust and support from students and young people, he really needs to provide big thinking ideas and solutions to these issues. But like forever now, students have been talking about the issues about marketization of education, the, struggle, uh, the struggles renting in the private rental sector for students, 
big radical changes are desperately needed right now and students really need to be listened to on these issues and also taking in their experiences because they're going to be very different to what they were when Keir Starmer went to uni mm -hmm. and even when I started uni which was like seven years ago so yeah I think it's promising but he's still got a long way to go to gain the trust and support of young people. So I want to focus a little bit on the opposition given that we're, that we're going into a general um, election very very soon next year at the latest um, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on Sir Keir Starmer now we both remember during the Labour leadership he had quite a radical um, position on education scrapping tuition fees on maintenance grants and other things and he seems to have rolled back on all of them. How disappointed are you in Sakir Starmer? Incredibly disappointed, but also it was kind of what I expected, uh, kind of with his trajectory and like kind of the way he was working before his Labour leadership. I didn't really expect him to keep to that promise because he had already U-turned on a lot of issues. But, you know, obviously I did hope that he would keep that uh, promise to abolish tuition fees um i think it's very short-sighted and i think you know we saw during corbyn the corbyn years like no one can disagree that young people got so empowered and active in politics because of the promises that corbyn made for young people and students and you know if we had had them in place now then we wouldn't mm. be facing such an existential crisis in higher education so and it I was and you really and your view is really it was it was those policies right because I remember look the consensus in our politics has always been that young people don't vote uh, and there's no point in in giving them any policies that would improve their lives or their circumstances mm. because they just don't vote for you. 2017 seemed to kind of hit that a little bit. I remember the initial responses were there was a youth quake, which was the term that used lots of young people um, had voted. So. And, and we've seen that in other countries as well. In America specifically, young people were absolutely part of the coalition that, that eliminated Trump. We've seen it in individual constitu constituencies in the UK um, with um, with Sheffield, for example, being one um, uh, when the Liberal Democrat leader was kicked out largely by university mm -hmm. population. Um, how how much of a political benefit is there? Because there's, you know, there's 7 million strong students around the country. Not all of them can vote, but there's a huge sort of voter base to go after here is there not yeah a hundred percent and not just a voter base but also they're willing to go out on the streets when i was a student it was 2019 election and i was out on the streets of like you know random swing seats in the northwest like constantly like campaigning canvassing did you come to us you know we had the time and like we were keen we were excited about you know the labor party at that time so Chloe, did you come to Uxbridge? To where? To Uxbridge. No, I didn't. I I'm I heartbroken, Chloe. I know. I said in Crimean <laughs> I think I would have It's probably too far away. Yeah. But like you're saying, one of the things I don't want to do, you know, when it comes to students, it's always like, oh, you're going to get a lot of shit on Twitter or on TikTok, and there's going to be a little bit of outrage, but, but, um, but not much more than that. And what I want our politicians to hear is there's opportunity here. There's political opportunity to excite young people. Yeah, definitely. Um... I, yeah, I think like you just said, like it's kind of like, oh yeah, of course the young people are gonna like kick off for a bit online, but they're not gonna do much. But actually, you know, the young kind of the voter base can be stronger. At the moment, it's not because they've been taken for granted or they've just been ignored. But right now, I think young people and students are recognizing that, you know, this can't go on for much longer and that they need to have their voices heard. And we're seeing that 
in NUS in our campaigns around the general election and mm. you know voter registration, we're seeing people getting excited. So I think this is a really good opportunity to kind of have the young voice heard and mm-hmm. kind of not be silenced anymore by well, large well, political parties. Well, given that there's a general election coming up um, and uh, there will be people listening from from certainly Labour, but probably also Conservatives and Liberals as well. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the NUS priority campaigns are and what you guys are working on ahead of 2015. I think 2025, I think you've been Vice President of Higher Education for over a year now. So what are some of your priorities now? So, yeah, the big ones, uh, like I said, uh, we're doing a big campaign on registering to vote, getting young people and students registered to vote because, you know, like we've just talked about, it's, you know, people feel disempowered so they don't register mm-hmm. to vote but this creates this cycle that we basically need to break and political parties need to really listen to young people and students because the future of this country relies it's, on them for on, on registration shock. to vote is one of the solutions not quite simple it exists in other countries which is when you register for university in your enrollment just put them on the electoral roll how easy is that yeah so uh, some uh, one in three unis do that actually um and there is a software in place to do it. Uh, however, not, I think not enough universities are kind of like taking up that uh, software. And also, I think the Office for Students could definitely do uh, a better job at kind of enforcing the regulations that they have in this area and getting universities to prioritise it more. But it's something we're getting student officers across the country to kind of get their university to do and bring that on. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there are over 600 institutions uh, around the country most of whom have a students union so mm. um nus is unique i think around the world when i was nus when i was vpud we you know we kind of went around different countries and we met with students unions from across europe and elsewhere and one of the things we realized is how incredibly powerful nus is and can be i mean if you imagine there's not many postcodes around the uk where there isn't a student living within an institution which has a students union and is usually linked to nus so um you you were just talking about more priority campaigns you, student voting is one what are some of the others mm-hmm. so uh, alongside that uh, another kind of general election aim uh, and kind of like campaign is not just the voter registration but also amplifying student voices so we're running a big education conversation across the country where you know student unions will be running their own ones to basically listen to students what do you want to see in a manifesto what would get you excited to vote and bringing that all together and creating basically a student manifesto that has been compiled by student unions and students across the country and is owned by them and also something that students can point out and be like to politicians and candidates we won't vote for you if you don't pledge for these things and with that empowerment of registering to vote and you know actually using your vote for something that like for a politician that actually makes you excited to vote mm-hmm. um i think it can be really influential and it's all about you know amplifying and making the student voice louder and a, a real big priority this year okay um chloe we're gonna play a little game me and you now all right great <laughs> head of a general election vice president um nus one of the the leaders of the student movement around the country um clearly you know um you you've been working really hard uh, and engaged with a lot of people in the sector on a scale to z- from zero to 10 i want to tell you how excited you are at the prospect of any of these politicians getting elected <laughs> rishi sunak zero christ <laughs> I, I, i'm surprised at how high that is um, ed davy yeah zero <laughs> sakir starmer 
would say two so far. He's, um, got, he's got a long way to come, I think. And I don't think we'll go into the nations for fear of devolution debates and, 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 and discussions. I assume you live in England. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah, we'll, do, so, yeah. so we'll leave we'll see we'll leave Wales, uh, Northern Ireland, uh, and Scotland to the others. But obviously, you also engage with um, with the Secretary of State for Education, presumably higher education. What's your relationship like with them? Um, currently, at the moment, we don't particularly have a relationship with them, um, despite a lot of kind of large politicians kind of pushing and like senior politicians pushing for engagement. We don't have an engagement really with the secretary of state for education we really um, you haven't had engagement with the secretary of state they're just not not speaking to you no not so the secretary of state of education is not currently speaking to the national union of students yeah (laughs) it just shows how they actually value student voices they just don't give a fuck no they don't care at all which is you know He's surprised, but it is, yeah, pretty. I'm shocked. I mean, even look in the days that we were there, um, and it was tumultuous days to say the least, we still had engagement with people like Joe Johnson and others. Now they just won't even d- talk to the national... That's a scandal, surely. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think also, but also on a positive side, it also shows how powerful we are mm-hmm. as a student movement. You know, clearly they don't want to engage with us to kind of almost like legitimise us before a general election. They know for a fact that students will be holding into account and will be criticising many, you know, like many of the stories yeah. alongside, you know, other politicians. But I think it, like, the way I'm looking at it is positive. Yeah, they're scared. And, you know, if they're not going to listen to us, that's a detriment to them and we're going to be a Punish- powerful force in the general election. Yeah, and election. then punish them at the ballot box, I think, um, yeah, is, is, is the best way to it. Listen, Chloe, I'm, I'm a champion of NUS. Um, I have right. I love NUS and, and grew up in the NUS system. So all the power to you. Um, Thank you. I'm a big supporter of all the campaigns that you guys uh, run and all the work that you continue to do and the students' unions continue to do. Um, so we'd love to have you guys back on closer to the general election. You can kind of talk through your priority campaigns more with us. Um, and, and hopefully, hopefully we can get some sort of change in this um, in this sector because it's entirely going down the wrong direction. Thank you, Chloe. That's Thank Chloe Field, Vice President for Higher Education at the National Union of students i will be Thank back you. after this message fubar radio present access all areas we have the absolute icon mm-hmm. legend janice dickinson i'm here do you still enjoy doing reality shows or do you now see it as more of like a part of your job that you like have to do i do i do really enjoy it i do i don't enjoy the actuality of of eating fish eyeballs. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that side to Amazon. Or vagina of cow. Yeah. But you do like the but sort of social I, side, do you? Like just the the social know. side was fantastic. Just getting to know people mm. and uh, sleeping with people and eating with people when we didn't really have enough food. Politics uncensored. This week we have Natalie Balmain, winner of Channel 4's Make Me a Prime Minister. We do have a serious problem with the standard of our public servants and the behaviour they display both in office and in ministerial office, no? Absolutely, 100. We're an embarrassment. Yeah. You no. know, we're we're a, a nation that once purported to be world leaders. But now with the people we have in charge, we can't even lead ourselves. Well, we are leading the world in terms of idiots and, and clowns. <laughs> in office, I think. The dating show. Do you Please remember do. back in the day when it used to be like fashionable or uh, it was it was the thing to do when you'd go on Facebook yeah, and you'd be like, oh, I'm like in a relationship. What was the other one? It was, um, it's complicated. 
Do you remember that one? Yeah, it's uh, in a relationship with, yeah. or it's, it's complicated. complicated. But then what you used to do, it used to pop up on the feed. So you'd be sitting there. Yeah. Uh, and then in the feed, it would be, um, I don't know, Jess, whoever is now single. So you'd like that one. Or do, poke them. Did you poke them? And then you'd give you them a little poke. poke. Yeah. yeah. Give a little virtual poke. Yeah. Um, just to go, I see you're single now, babe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, oh, Facebook were great, weren't it? You're listening to Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Welcome back. This is Ali Milani on Foobar Radio, our politics uncensored. And we've had a really, really brilliant show around education. Um, a quite depressing show, actually, because we all know how important the education sector is for the future of the country, for aspiration, for breaking the class ceiling. Um, and it seems like over the last 15 years, um, it has really been trampled on, destroyed, from tuition fees being troubled to the marketization of the education sector, or higher education institutions, maintenance grants being get, gotten rid of, bursaries being gotten rid of, the cost of living crisis, Brexit, Ukraine. Um, and it seems like one generation continues to get battered, and that was mine. And we spoke about it with, with, with Femi earlier on in the show, um, his view on everything from uh, the FTSE 100 bosses getting raises to Lucy Letby's uh, murder of children and um, the education sector. We've also had uh, Tom Allingham join us and Chloe Field, Vice President for the National Union of Students. A huge thank you to all of them. Um, but I don't want the show to end on a down note, and I never do. Um, yes, the system is fucked, um, and we've got a marketization of the education sector, people being locked out, and I thought what was what was really hard-hitting was Tom Allingham, who works for Save the Student, essentially advising someone who comes from a working-class background whose parents won't be able to help them through education, who might have a dream to become a doctor, advising them not to do it. Um, and I can't think of anything more depressing than telling a, a young person who dreams of becoming a doctor, of helping people, that because of the family they were born in, the postcode they were born in, that they can't go on and, and, and accomplish their dreams. And as depressing as all of that is, the whole point of this discussion, and it began with Sir Keir Starmer's comments around a possible announcement, announcement to come on student fees and making the system fairer ahead of a general election, is just that that there is a general election coming. And as bad as things always are, every four or five years, sometimes less in this country, we have the opportunity to go to a ballot box and overthrow the government. And this has to be on the priority list. Uh, and so I'm urging, you know, the reason it's not is because they assume that young people won't, won't vote. Uh, and therefore, if you don't vote and you can't punish them at the ballot box, that they can get away with anything. And so they take the money from you and give it to people who will vote. Um, and so... That next general election, just like we've said on the NHS, is a turning point for education in this country. Uh, and I hope you hear the warnings from Tom, from Chloe, from Femi. Uh, go out to register to vote and make sure that higher education policy and reform is absolutely at the top uh, of the agenda. I just want to say one more time a big thank you to Tom Allingham, Chloe Field and Femi Oliwale for joining us on the show. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Politics. Fubar on Instagram at Politics Fubar as well. Follow me on TikTok at Ali Milani three. I think I'm on Twitter also at Ali Milani UK. You can watch, listen to all the shows back. We've got some amazing shows from everything from the NHS to education to foreign policy, migrants. Um, we've had the likes of Lord Hesseltine uh, on all the way to Clive Lewis MP, and we've now we had Femi on today. So you can go at FubarRadio.com uh, and listen to all the episodes back. Uh, 
it's been another great week talking about the important uh, issues uh, and getting voices that you would not have heard from ordinarily. Um, I've been Ali Milani. Thank you so much for joining us. Go and follow us on all the social media channels. Share, subscribe, leave a comment so we can hear from you. And I will see you all next week. Salams.